Well, good morning again. It's good to see you all. Thank you all for gathering here this morning. Thank you for bringing the church into uh, this sanctuary space. And for those of you that are gathered for Crosspoint at home, thanks for bringing the church into your living room or your back porch or wherever you happen to be uh, watching from. If you're somebody that's new to Crosspoint, we've never been introduced. My name is Jamie. And it's my great joy and privilege to be one of the pastors uh, at Crosspoint. Uh, I also have the privilege of opening up God's word for us this morning as we uh, get into week three of our Advent series that's called Bright Hope for tomorrow. You heard a portion of the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, playing just a moment ago. And that line comes uh, from that particular song of this reminder that there actually is a sure hope And for those of us that are in Christ, it's not just this wishful thinking, hoping things will sort of work out in the end, but there's a promise that Jesus makes that one day he's going to return. And so I said this last week, but just by way of like review, so we keep this at the forefront of our minds. We celebrate the first advent, certainly, the coming of Jesus, of God literally moving into the neighborhood, taking on flesh and blood, the fact that that God would come to dwell with his people is so unheard of and unfathomable and what an amazing gift. And so we celebrate the first Advent, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, like that is all about that. But Advent is also not only looking back and celebrating what God has done in the first Advent, but this longing, right, for the second Advent that Jesus will come back and that he's gonna set everything right and he's returning triumphant. He's no longer little baby Jesus, all right, and laying in a manger, but he is the triumphant king. He's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. And so we long for that day. And so our calling as Christians then is in this season of waiting. And Advent is just a reminder that all of life really is spent with this waiting posture. But this is a particular time in the church calendar to just sort of focus in on that and ask ourselves, how can we live today? Like to live this day in light of that day, that promised return of Jesus And friends, I know for myself, like, if I were to actually live that theology out, the things that make me frustrated or anxious or sad or angry or like any of those things, not that 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 would all just, you know, vaporize, that it would disappear, but I think it would radically shape how I think about even the frustrations or the disappointments in life if I knew that there was a day that is coming And not just intellectually sort of gave mental assent to that, but like deep in my core, like was convinced that there is a day that is coming, the day of the Lord. And if I was aware of that more on a daily basis, it would transform, I believe, how I live this day. It doesn't mean the problems would no longer be important. They would certainly would be, but there would be this new perspective on okay, this is the story we're part of and God is at work even in the pain and the hardship. And I believe that to be true, not only for myself, but for all of us. And so what would it look like as the church to live this day right here with the hurts and pains and the joys and the triumphs and the sorrows and everything in light of that day? And imagine the witness we could have together as the church because this is a calling, not just for individuals. We don't just wait alone, but we wait together. And we bear witness together about the hope that we have. And so each week, I want to look at a particular aspect of the hope that we have. Last week, we looked at uh, hope for the church. Is there hope for the church? How should we think about the, the church? And I want to pose a question this morning as we get into our, our particular topic this morning in this Advent season. If I were to have a conversation with you or you were to have a conversation with somebody and they asked you this question... What do you think about, what do you, what, when you think about discipleship, like what comes to mind? 
in discipleship or being a disciple, a way to say, being a follower of Jesus, to be a disciple means to be a learner. Like, what would be some of the things, like, what would I overhear in a conversation if you were talking with a friend about discipleship? And my guess is you'd hear a, a few different things. I mean, you probably would hear things about, hey, to grow in a, as a disciple, like it's important to, to gather together on a, on a Sunday morning, not in a legalistic sense as if this saves you. It doesn't, in case that was your hope today. Oh, you're at church, you're saved. Nope, that's not it, all right? Uh, but it's important as part of our ongoing discipleship to have this time. You might hear things, might talk about things that pertain to your personal devotional life, reading the Bible, praying, right? Meditating on the scriptures, maybe memorizing some verses. I mean, all of those things. Maybe it's about the fellowship that we have with one another. Maybe it's about serving together. Maybe it's about giving, tithing. Maybe it's about, you know, getting in a small group or a Bible study. All of those are aspects of our discipleship, most certainly. But what I find fascinating um, is that the late theologian John Stott um, who would be an advocate for all of those things that I just rattled off a moment ago. Um, he is a guy who, if you were wondering, like, hey, what's a go-to resource to even understand the depth, the mystery, the beauty of what happened on the cross? He wrote a book called The Cross of Christ. It would be one of the ones I would commend to you, like this brilliant mind, this brilliant theologian. And he would certainly be in agreement about all these aspects of what it means to be a disciple. But the last book, I believe, published before his death, he wrote on a number of different topics in a book called The Radical Disciple. Um, and what he was getting at was some areas of our Christian discipleship, he thinks, that are oftentimes ignored or neglected by the church. And we probably don't set out to be like, I'm going to ignore these things today. But there's something about the culture even of Christianity that there are certain things that we have not submitted to the lordship of Jesus, and we might just ignore it. And so he writes on a number of different topics. And in chapter four of this particular book, as he's writing about often neglected aspects of discipleship, he speaks of the high calling to the Christian to be involved in care of the creation. That there is a gift that the Lord has given to us of this world, right? We sing this, like, this is our Father's world. Like, God has created all of this. And so how are we to even think about this world? What's going to happen to this world in the end? Because if there's this second advent, maybe you've been taught or had a mindset or maybe just assumed, like, okay, this is all going to go away. Maybe you've gotten some biblical images of like, this is all going to burn up and God's going to start over. There's a reboot, right? That is not the biblical picture. And so this morning, I want to talk about in this Advent season, what does it look like to have a bright hope for the creation, for this world that God has given to us? And so we're going to be in a number of different passages this morning. Uh, we'll spend a good bit of time in Romans 8, but um, to help follow along, for one, if you brought a Bible, have that. It's always helpful to have the Word of God in front of you, um, so whether that's you got a Bible that looks like this or on your phone, but the other thing that you could do as well to find the text that we'll be in um, is go to uh, thisiscp.church, all right, or on the pews that this morning, you'll see a little QR code that you can scan. It'll bring up a menu where you can click sermon notes, and the text that we'll be in is there. There's space to take notes. Anything that I put up on the, the slides this morning will be there as well. 
But what I want to do is sort of get a bit of this survey of how should we think as the church about creation, all right? So we're going to look at the goodness of creation. In order to help us see that, we're going to go way back to the beginning, to Genesis 1. We'll spend a little bit of time. But also, because of the brokenness and the fall, the sinfulness, there is a groaning that creation has. And we'll look at that. And we want to spend a little bit of time then saying, okay, if there is this brokenness, yet also a goodness that we live in this tension, how does the gospel speak to that? And then ultimately, what is your call and my call and our call together as the church? And so I think this is an important topic. I would agree with John Stott that it is one that is oftentimes neglected. And I want you to know this at the outset. Part of me picking this even as a particular topic, there's all kinds of things we could talk about in terms of like, what do we have hope for, right? There's no lack of things to talk about, all right? And so it wasn't, it wasn't like putting a bunch of topics in a, in a hat and like picking it out and be like, oh, we'll talk about this uh, on December 11th. This, for me, friends, in many ways was a discipline to say, I want to grow in this. Um, there's some aspirational aspects of this. This is not because I'm the model of like how to go and who's figured all of this out and what it looks like to live as a steward of God's creation. But I know enough theologically to know like this should matter. And I don't think it matters enough in my own life. And my guess is that that may be similar for you. And I think it would be helpful for us as a church to explore this and to talk about, to understand how the Bible speaks of these matters. And so, bright hope for the creation. So I want to I start by looking at the goodness of creation, all right? So if you've got a Bible, literally, it's probably page one, it's easy to find, um, is the book of Genesis, all right? And let's look at this. I won't read the entire chapter. The whole chapter is amazing. We don't have enough time for all of it, but I'm, I'm going to read the opening few verses. And it says this, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So just picture that. Like, everything is dark. It's chaotic. Nothing is in a state where it could be inhabited. There's no humankind. There's no animals. It literally is just, these, just this darkness, a void, this chaos, and then God begins to speak, all right? And maybe about as close as I get to this is, you know, telling a device in my home like, hey, Alexa, hey, Siri, or do these sorts of things. And, And maybe once in a while, it might respond and do the thing that I want it to actually do, right? And the power of God, though, is when God speaks, it just happens. And so God speaks into this void. And here's what we get as we get to verse three. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And it continues, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And so as you hear these words, 
And perhaps you're familiar enough with the Bible to know, okay, yeah, this sounds so- somewhat familiar. There is this sort of rhythm to this. There's this poetic nature to what is being laid out that God speaks into the chaos. He is the one, his word forms things. We know Jesus is the one who is the word, all right? We'll look at that a bit more later in our time together, but Jesus is the one who's doing this work of creation. And as he speaks, things begin to happen. And then it tells us, and there's this repeated refrain throughout it. You've heard it a couple times in these opening 10 verses. If you kept reading throughout Genesis chapter one, you would hear it again and again and again, that there's this declaration that God makes at the conclusion of the days. It is good. And then when he gets to the pinnacle, in many ways, of his creation, and he creates humanity, he creates male and female, he creates Adam and Eve, he looks at them as image bearers, distinct from everything else in the creation, and he says, ah, it's very good. And the language here, all right, it's not God declaring it as if he was unsure, like, oh, dang, like that worked out better than I thought. Yeah, that's pretty good, right? Like that is not the disposition or attitude of God. God is reveling in, marveling in, deeply satisfied. He is stepping away from what he has made and declaring it's good. Like if you had those moments before, right? Like you've attempted maybe to build something, to craft something. Maybe there's a home project you're working on or there's a meal that you're putting together or a trip that you are trying to plan or a gift for somebody, right? And you get a moment, just a a moment of space to step back from it. And just to sort of marvel at it and be like, wow, like this is great. This is amazing, right? Like that's what's happening. If we as fallen, broken, sinful people can marvel even at the good things that we can produce and create, how much greater for the God of all things, he's all powerful, he's almighty, he steps back and he takes a moment to just marvel at it all. It's like, it's good. He's enjoying it, he's satisfied by it. And the beautiful, wonderful thing is this, this world, our Father's world that he has created, he steps back from it and declares that it's good, and then for us as his image bearers, he invites us, come enjoy the goodness of his creation. Come enjoy all that he has made. And yes, we're gonna see as we get just a couple chapters later in Genesis three, there's a brokenness, but there still is a beauty There's a goodness to creation. It is not all that God originally intended it to be, but there still is this goodness about it. This is why the psalmist would write in Psalm 19 that there is a sermon that is being preached every moment of every day. It is the longest sermon in the history of the world. You thought my sermons were long. Nothing compared to Psalm 19, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. The psalmist is saying all of creation speaks. All of creation is declaring a sermon talking about the glory and the wonder that is this world. And here's the calling, friends. It is not to misconstrue it, as Paul would write in the book of Romans chapter one about exchanging the truth of God for a lie and doing this, worshiping the creation rather than the creator. 
That is not the calling. If there's at any point you're wondering, hey, if we're talking about creation and the environment and care, like, are we worshiping the creation? No, 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 no. That would be exchanging the truth of God for a lie, and it's a lie that leads to chaos and disconnection from God that is not the place we want to be. But it is telling us a story of how creation is meant to point us to the creator and that we might marvel at it. So as we think about this, as we press into this, let me ask you another question. So I asked you a moment ago, like, how would you think about discipleship? And does even an idea toward the care of creation, does that even factor in? Now, what if somebody came up to you, all right, and said this question, if they posed this to you, hey, are you comfortable calling the earth your mother? I know for me, initially, if I, if I heard that sort of question, all right, I would be, uh-oh, nope, and here is we, where we part ways theologically, all right? Nice to meet you. That was a fun theological conversation. Um, no, it, it would immediately, for me, bring to mind things like, this person must worship creation. This person is making too much of creation. They're thinking that they're saved by recycling. Like, no, this is not what it's, the, the calling is, right? So I would immediately have this, I would cringe, to be honest. I would be like, no, 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 no. Because I think I associate with it even kind of common vernacular, right, of things like, oh, the Mother Earth and these sorts of things, or Mother Nature. Like, no. No, God is the creator. Now, I say all of that, and then I'm reading a book this week, and it starts referencing one particular theologian, most would regard him perhaps as the preeminent theologian that America has ever produced by the name of Jonathan Edwards. What if I told you Jonathan Edwards, in his understanding of the scriptures, in a particular verse, which I'll show you in just a moment, actually talked of the earth as our mother. Now, that was a surprise to me. I was like, wait, no, 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 I don't think that that's actually true. But let me put it before you, all right? He referenced, there's this scene in the book of Job. If you know the story of Job, you know that Job seemingly has everything going for him. He's got a great family, all right? Wife, kids, successful businesses. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's affluent. He seemingly has everything that one could want. And then like that, it all disappears. And here's Job's response in Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. It says this after losing everything, as one servant after another comes and tells him of his losses. He says this, Then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell on the ground, and he worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord." Now, there's far more in there that we could talk about in regards to when we encounter suffering and pain. I know my initial response is not a glad-hearted worship of the Lord. Job somehow is able to, he's grieving, but also worshiping. and That's another sermon for another time. But this line here says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. And so, I would say I've always just thought of that, um, that, yeah, well, at the end of the day, when your time has come, like, you can't take the things of this world with you, right? Maybe you've heard it said this way, like, you never see a hearse traveling down the road with, like, a U-Haul trailer behind it, right? You just, no, like, you're not, like, you don't get to take your prized possessions 
with you. And so I always sort of assumed that, yeah, that that's what it's getting at. But I was reading this book this week by an author, theologian, Jake Mador, I think is how you pronounce his last name, called What Are Christians For? And he's interacting with this text, and he's interacting with our call to care for the world that God has given to us. And he's interacting with the theologian, Jonathan Edwards, around this verse. And so let me just read to you these words. Job says that he came from his mother naked. That's obvious enough, we think. And naked shall I return. So who is the mother Job is thinking of when he says this? It can't be his biological mother because he won't return to her when he dies. The American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards has the answer. Edwards suggests that the earth is, quote, the common mother of mankind. The, quote, mother Job is referring to, Edwards says, is the bowels of his mother earth out of which every man is made. God is our father, Edwards says, and the earth our mother. Now, Again, Romans 1, keep that in mind. We are not called to worship the creation. But I wonder if we haven't missed the significance of what this world is and the goodness of it and the plans that God has for it. And perhaps our emphasis on praying a prayer to accept Jesus into your heart, right? Like we're all for and we long for people to meet Jesus personally, Is it possible that sometimes we lose the cosmic scope of how God is going to redeem and to renew everything? That it's not just about you and I meeting Jesus and then sitting back and just watching him just like level this world at some point. But what if we understood what is happening here, that there's a goodness about creation and yet holding intention, friends, that in the midst of this goodness, there also is a very real fall. And part of even what the fall does is it corrupts our focus and our worship. And so it is so true that so many spend too much time and energy functionally worshiping the things of this world. And that is not the call. That is idolatry, and it leads to hell. But there is a call to rightly understand how God is at work in the world. And so I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 8. This is where we hear the Apostle Paul speaking about creation, speaking about this groaning in light of the fact that there is Genesis 1 and 2, but then there's Genesis 3, where our original parents, Adam and Eve, they reach for the fruits. They say, I want to be a God unto myself. I want to do what I want to do. They're not actually satisfied with the goodness of the creation that God has given to them. They think that they need more, and what happens? Everything begins to spiral. And God then begins to pronounce curses upon the significant aspects of life, He tells them that work is now going to be difficult, like you will make a living by the sweat of your brow. There'll be thorns and thistles to deal with, all right? It's the precursor to people saying, I got a case of the Mondays, right? Like, that's what's happening back in Genesis chapter 3. And then the idea of being fruitful and multiplying, yep, that's going to come at great pain now. There'll be pain in childbirth. There'll be tension between the genders, between the husband and the wife. There's going to be Curses that are pronounced upon the creation. So everything in Genesis 1 and 2 worked together in the way that God intended it. People were in right relationship with God, their maker. They were in right relationship with one another. And they had a right relationship and stewardship of the creation. They didn't worship it, but they enjoyed it. They participated in the goodness of it. And they helped take what was in Eden. They were called to make that spread out to the rest of the world. 
Eden was the prototype. But it all goes off the rails when they rebel and they commit treason against their king. And so now there's this groaning. Look with me at Romans chapter 8. Pick it up in verse 18 and read verses 18 to 22. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We'll come back to that more in a moment. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So let's take just a moment and look at these particular words. Verse 19, it says, for the creation waits. There's that idea, again, of this Advent season, right? Jesus has come. He's lived a sinless life. He has died. He's resurrected. He has ascended. And now Paul writes, all of creation is in this state of waiting, all right? And it says they wait. It's like talking as if it's personifying creation here in, this, in these verses, all of creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The language here is as if the creation is reflecting, as if it could do this and saying, oh, for those that are in Christ, for the sons and daughters of the king, the sons and daughters of God, there's going to be this renewal that happens, right? Like Jesus is the prototype. We see what happened to him. Oh, that's what's going to happen to all of us who are in Christ. We looked at that a few weeks ago about the renewal of our, even our physical bodies. And so the creation is looking at that and saying, oh, when that happens, guess what? Then we all get to get in on that. It's like not only are, is humanity, those that are in Christ, the followers of Jesus gonna be renewed and restored and ultimately redeemed, enjoying the presence of God. The creation has this longing like, that's the cue. That's when it's gonna happen for us. And this word that is being used here, there's this, this Greek word that I probably will mispronounce, uh, I most certainly will, will but um, apokaradokia, all right? And it's this idea here of speaking, it's this reference to the head in many ways, and it's a looking. It's as if creation is up on its tippy toes, right? Like straining its neck, just like looking, peering over the horizon, like, oh, is it coming? Is it almost time for our renewal. It's like a kid on Christmas Eve longing for Christmas morning and just this anticipation. Paul is telling us right here, right now, all of creation lives with that sense of, of this longing, of this anticipation, of this like straining its neck up on its tiptoes, just waiting. When is God going to do it? And then Paul continues, for the creation was subjected to futility. It's the same word and idea that is used in the book of Ecclesiastes, where the writer says over and over again, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless, right? Like this world at times feels like vanity. It feels like futility and meaninglessness. It says not willingly. The creation didn't wake up one day, right? And be like, you know what? I want to be subjected to futility. No, um, that happened another way. But because it says not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. It's that God himself has subjected it to this futility because of humanity's sin, 
of what we have done, how we have disrupted and disordered things. But he subjected it in hope that as the creation waits and as we wait, there's this hope. It says that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. And again, what's coming for us as children of God is also what awaits the creation. So the creation, in many ways, Paul is saying, is like encouraged to know like what's going to happen to us. And that's amazing. We shouldn't lose sight of that. Like all of Romans 8 is great. Pastor Eric preached this same text looking at the particular aspects of like our adoption this summer. Like read all of it. But in particular right here, I'm just focusing on the aspect of the, the created world. And then in verse 22, it says this, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That there's this agony, there's this, there's this groaning, there is this crying out that is, that is taking place, Paul says. And so some of you who know me know that I uh, um, have made this particular joke a few times. I do not recommend uh, this particular joke. I'm not sure I recommend any of the jokes uh, that I tell. But, um, uh, but I will at times, I've made reference, um, you know, just if I'm, you know, just trying to be more annoying than normal, um, uh, I will say things as, you know, if something comes up about childbirth um, and about like, you know, my wife going through labor and that, and I'll be like, yeah, but I've had kidney stones, so I feel you. Like, I, I, know, what, I know what it's like, right? Um, and so I will say things like that. I do not recommend that. That is not a good line of, of thinking, all right? Um, but I will say stupid things uh, like that. Like, yep, I know exactly how you feel. Yep, you know, right there with you, all right? Um, nope, it's not, not true. Um, I should repent of that joke. It should never be used again. But I'll use it for this illustrative purpose for a moment, right? Um, and so I have actually had kidney stones before. It is no fun, all right? Um, it did not happen at the same time my uh, wife was in, in labor. But imagine for a moment, though, that those two things coincided, right? Um, and so there at the hospital, imagine her in, in labor, all right, and me also feeling a kidney stone coming on, all right? Um, there would be groaning that's happening by both of us, right? There'd be a, a yelling, a groaning, oh, I mean, there's just like all of this pain, right? But at the end of the day, what I have to show forth, right, is like, look, here's this little mineral deposit. Oh, he has my eyes, right? Like, no, like, that's, that's not it. It's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing that's amazing, all right? There would be the pain and the agony, but it doesn't produce anything. My wife, on the other hand, I have brought forth a human. What have you done, right? Like, that's amazing. And what Paul is saying is, listen, there's pain and there's suffering in this world, but it doesn't all produce the same kind of things. But the creation, the type of pain it's in is like the pain of going through labor, of childbirth. And yes, it can be painful and difficult right now, but the moment that that child is born, there's this, this moment of like, oh my goodness, look. And the pain begins to dissipate and the focus on just what had just transpired is no longer in the front of the mind. And it's about the joy. And so Paul is saying, oh, friends, this is the best I can do. I'm like, I'm grappling with just to try and find the right sort of language. It's like, there is going to be something so amazing. And so yes, in the midst of the groaning, because there is groaning, right? The creation. I mean, we see it all, all the time. There are things like tornadoes, and there's floods, and there's earthquakes. And then there's 
things that we get to deal with as well, like hurricanes, right? These are not part of the creation, like the good design for things. This is part of the fall. It's part of the brokenness. There's pollution, right? There's rainforests being destroyed. There are things that, that are happening of like particular species being extinct. Right? I mean, there's like all of these things that are happening out in the world. And I'm not up here to say, and here's how we should handle that or how we should solve that. I, there, hear, hear me on this. There are people who love Jesus very sincerely, who will even see like proposed solutions to some of those things very, very differently. What I'm trying to say is this. Can we at least acknowledge that as humanity, we don't always help things? Like we sometimes make things worse. Rather than being stewards of what God has given us and to help cultivate the goodness of creation, like we don't act as stewards, we act as owners and we start ruining it. We use it for our own ends and purposes and we get caught up in just a consumption mindset rather than a cultivation and the care of things. And so our calling then is to step in. But I'm getting ahead of myself just a bit. So in light of this groaning, here's the good news. And Paul is unpacking this, not only in Romans 8, we'll look at another passage. All of this, friends, is ultimately routes back to how the gospel intersects with this. That the gospel is this story of God renewing, yes, humanity. And you and I are separated from God. We are dead in our sins and our trespasses. We need Jesus to die the death that we deserve so we could be given his holiness, his righteousness to be accepted by God the Father, that Jesus would endure hell for us, that he would conquer Satan, sin, and death by rising again on the third day. If I talk about all this stuff, don't miss that. Like there's a very personal component to this. Like you and I need Jesus. And yet in this, part of the way God is at work and what was even accomplished on the cross goes beyond just him saving of you and me as his image bearers. As amazing as that is, he's also renewing everything. Look with me at Colossians chapter one. We see this in verses 15 to 20, the gospel in creation. It says this about Jesus and begins to talk about him as the creator. He is the image of the invisible God that Jesus has shown up in flesh and blood, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. So every bit of the goodness of this created world that we enjoy, that we're aware of, and even the things that we're not aware of, guess who made it all? Jesus. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If we just stop there for a moment, think about that. Not only did Jesus create it, he's not this sort of deistic God, all right, that just like wound up the clock of the universe and steps back and says, all right, I'm done here. My work is done. No, Jesus is so intimately involved that literally every aspect of our lives in this world, he is holding together right now. The fact that there's oxygen for you to take in right now, that's part of Jesus holding everything together. The fact that we're on this giant ball in the sky called the earth that is spinning at this incredible rate and that it doesn't just fly off into the universe and 
you know, get incinerated by the sun. That's Jesus holding it all together. He has got everything. He has got you. There's nothing that is outside of his sovereign control. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. It's all under his power and authority. So in he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's not about you and me and our name. It's not about the name of our church. It's about Jesus. That's why we talk as a church, pointing our community to Jesus. No one needs to be pointed to me or to you. People need to be pointed to Jesus to know how they can be saved, how they can grow as a disciple, as a follower, and then know what their calling is in this world. And then verse 19, Paul continues, verses 19 to 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And through him to reconcile to himself, not just you and me, it says, but all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The groaning of creation, of which we are part of, and we groan and we cry out, and Jesus steps in and he dies in our place, and he satisfies the wrath of God. He does all of those things. So praise God for that. Let us never lose sight of that. But in light of that truth, then, he's also telling us that what happened on the cross is he was doing this work, all right, uh, whether on earth or in heaven, to reconcile to himself all things. That Jesus came with this plan of this cosmic redemption, that he cares about the goodness of this world. If anyone should care about the goodness and the beauty of this world, not to worship it, but to steward it well, it should be the church. It should be followers of Jesus. We get these prophetic pictures I'll read you just a couple from the prophet Isaiah who speaks of, oh, when the Messiah comes, like at the second advent, and there's a new heavens and a new earth, here's just some descriptions of what to expect. Because God has plans not just for you, but for his creation. Isaiah 35, let me read a few words. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice. I mean, even notice the language like that earth itself is rejoicing. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Where there was once like no life, everything's dead and arid, right? There's just this desert. Oh, there's, now it's teeming with life. Isaiah continues, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. We get over in Isaiah chapter 11, if we were to turn back a few pages, we get this in verses six to nine. The wolf shall lie, shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. Oh, and guess what? And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And in verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. That's a terrifying image, but doesn't it? I mean, it shows like, hey, here's the little baby. Oh, and there's the cobra, and they're cool, right? No, we would freak out, rightly so, as parents. Like, get away, right? But in the new heavens and the new earth, 
when everything's harmonious as God intended it to be. His beautiful creation, look at that. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So if this is where the story's heading, let's close with this. I don't know how you think about your life and your calling and your role. We all have particulars, you have particular vocations and interests and jobs and responsibilities. But one of the ways the Bible actually talks about it, if it was just to be kind of a big picture summary, is to remind us that you and I are gardeners. Like we are supposed to take the raw materials of the world, the things that we've been given. We don't exploit them. We don't use them for our own goods and advantage, but we arrange them. We cultivate. We do these things for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God. And so look with me as we wrap up. A couple of verses out of Genesis again. For one, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them, that's us, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Genesis 1 also speaks of subduing creation. It's not exploiting creation. Those verses have been like misconstrued and mishandled in various contexts over the years. Say, oh, we get to do whatever we want. No, God is saying, you're a steward. You're not an owner of this. Take care of it. Because we are here, we have to give it back to God. How are we doing with what he's entrusted to us? Are we caring for the things that he has created? Do we care about the things that God cares about? It's a question for us. Will we live, will you and I live as a gardener? Again, we don't worship the creation. We care for it. We remember that we have been redeemed by Jesus, that we are sons of the King. And what's happening and what's going to happen for us is going to happen for the whole world. And right now, He's asking us to participate. Close with this last quote. Christopher Wright, the theologian, says it this way. It seems quite inexplicable to me that there are some Christians who claim to love and to worship God, to be disciples of Jesus, and yet have no concern for the earth that bears his stamp of ownership. They do not care about the abuse of the earth, and indeed, by their wasteful and overconsumptive lifestyles, they collude in it. God intends our care of the creation to reflect our love for the creator. When you and I know that we have been so loved by the creator of the world, it frees us up to love the things that our creator loves. And one of the things that he loves is this world that he has created. And he invites us to marvel at it, to enjoy it, not to worship it, but to allow it to point us to him. So may we be a church that worships the creator, not the creation, but that we actually take our calling seriously. We get to be gardeners in God's universe. How amazing is that? So let me pray for us and ask you to consider the, these things. What is it perhaps the Spirit's leading that you need to confess to him? And we're going to celebrate together as we continue in worship and be thinking through what practically even next steps, what would it look like to be committed to these things? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy. In your kindness, your grace.
Thank you that you've designed things in such a way that you desire to work in through us. Thank you that we are your image bearers. And thank you for placing us in the exact time and places that we inhabit, that nothing is by accident, that you've determined where we should live, who our neighbors should be, the jobs that we have, the friends that we have, the schools we attend, all of that by your design. And so use us in those places. Would we just have a great joy in loving and serving you as we care for our neighbor and as we care for the world that you have placed us in? And may our motivation ultimately go back to the gospel, that we have been rescued and redeemed, that we've been reconciled to God, our Father, through the finished work of his Son. So as we remember that through this meal we'll participate in in a moment, as we sing songs together, God, I pray that you would get your glory and that we as your people would experience a deep and abiding joy. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.